Letter One from A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains by Isabella L. Bird. Letter One Lake Tahoe, September 2nd. I have found a dream of beauty, at which one might look all one's life and sigh, not lovable, like the Sandwich Islands, but beautiful in its own way, a strictly North American beauty, snow-splotched mountains, huge pines, redwoods, sugar-pines, silver spruce, a crystalline atmosphere, waves of the richest color, and a pine-hung lake which mirrors all beauty on its surface. Lake Tahoe is before me a sheet of water twenty-two miles long by ten broad, and in some places seventeen hundred feet deep. It lies at a height of six thousand feet, and the snow-crowned summits, which wall it in, are from eight thousand to eleven thousand feet in altitude. The air is keen and elastic. There is no sound but the distant and slightly musical ring of the lumberer's axe. It is a weariness to go back, even in thought, to the clang of San Francisco, which I left in its cold morning fog early yesterday, driving to the Oakland Ferry through the streets with sidewalks heaped with thousands of cantaloupe and watermelons, tomatoes, cucumbers, squashes, pears, grapes, peaches, apricots, all of startling size as compared with any I have ever saw before. Other streets were piled with sacks of flour, left out all night, owing to the security from rain at this season. I pass hastily over the early part of the journey, the crossing the bay in a fog as chill as November. The number of lunch-baskets, which gave the car the look of conveying a great picnic party, the last view of the Pacific, on which I had looked for nearly a year, the fierce sunshine and brilliant sky inland, the look of long rainlessness, which one may not call drought the valleys with sides crimson with the poison oak, the dusty vineyards, with great purple clusters thick among the leaves, and between the vines great dusty melons lying on the dusty earth. From off the boundless harvest-fields the grain was carried in June, and it is now stacked in sacks along the track, awaiting freightage. California is a land flowing with milk and honey. The barns are bursting with fullness. In the dusty orchards the apple and pear branches are supported, that they may not break down under the weight of the fruit. Melons, tomatoes, and squashes of gigantic size lie almost unheeded on the ground. Fat cattle, gorged almost to repletion, shade themselves under the oaks. Superb red horses shine, not with grooming, but with condition, and thriving farms everywhere show on what a solid basis the prosperity of the Golden State is founded. Very uninviting, however rich, was the blazing Sacramento Valley, and very repulsive the city of Sacramento, which at a distance of a hundred twenty-five miles from the Pacific has an elevation of only thirty feet. The mercury stood at a hundred three degrees in the shade, and the fine white dust was stifling. In the late afternoon we began the ascent of the Sierras, whose saw-like points had been in sight for many miles. The dusty fertility was all left behind, the country became rocky and gravelly, and deeply scored by the streams, bearing the muddy wash of the mountain gold-mines down to the muddier Sacramento. 
There were long broken ridges and deep ravines, the ridges becoming longer, the ravines deeper, the pines thicker and larger, as we ascend into a cool atmosphere of exquisite purity. And before six p.m., the last traces of cultivation and the last hardwood trees were left behind. Beginning of footnote. In consequence of the unobserved omission of a date to my letters having been pointed out to me, I take this opportunity of stating that I travelled in Colorado in the autumn and early winter of 1873, on my way to England from the Sandwich Islands. The letters are a faithful picture of the country and state of society as it then was. But friends who have returned from the West within the last six months tell me that things are rapidly changing, that the frame-house is replacing the log-cabin, and that the footprints of elk and bighorn may be sought for in vain on the dewy slopes of Estes Park. I.L.B. Author's Note to the Third Edition, January 16, 1880 End of footnote At Colfax, a station of a height of 2,400 feet, I got out and walked the length of the train. First came two great gaudy engines, the grizzly bear and the white fox with their respective tenders loaded with logs of wood, the engines with great solitary reflecting lamps in front, above the cow-guards, a quantity of polished brass-work, comfortable glass-houses, and well-stuffed seats for the engine-drivers. The engines and tenders were succeeded by a baggage-car, the latter loaded with bullion and valuable parcels, and in charge of two express agents. Each of these cars is forty-five feet long, then came two cars loaded with peaches and grapes, then two silver palace cars, each sixty feet long, then a smoking car, at that time occupied mainly by Chinamen, and then five ordinary passenger cars, with platforms like all the others, making altogether a train about seven hundred feet in length. The platforms of the four front cars were clustered over with digger Indians, with their squaws, children, and gear. They are perfect savages, without any aptitude for even aboriginal civilization, and are altogether the most degraded of the ill-fated tribes which are dying out before the white races. They were all very diminutive, five feet one inch being, I should think, about the average height, with flat noses, wide mouths, and black hair, cut straight above the eyes and hanging lank and long at the back and sides. The squalls wore their hair thickly plastered with pitch, and a broad band of the same across their noses and cheeks. They carried their infants on their backs, strapped to boards. The clothing of both sexes was a ragged, dirty combination of coarse woolen cloth and hide, the moccasins being unornamented. They were all hideous and filthy, and swarming with vermin. The men carried short bows and arrows. One of them, who appeared to be the chief, having a lynx's skin for a quiver. A few had fishing-tackle, but the bystanders said that they lived almost entirely upon grasshoppers. They were a most impressive incongruity in the midst of the tokens of an omnipotent civilization. The light of the sinking sun from that time glorified the Sierras, and as the dew fell, aromatic odors made the still air sweet. On a single track, sometimes carried on a narrow ledge excavated from the mountainside by men lowered from the top in baskets, overhanging ravines from two thousand to three thousand feet deep, the monster train snaked its way upwards, 
stopping sometimes in front of a few frame houses, at others where nothing was to be seen but a log cabin with a few Chinamen hanging about it, but where trails on the sides of the ravines pointed to a gold country above and below. So sharp and frequent are the curves on some parts of the ascent, that on looking out of the window one could seldom see more than a part of the train at once. At Cape Horn, where the track curves round the ledge of a precipice twenty-five hundred feet in depth, it is correct to be frightened, and a fashion of holding the breath and shutting the eyes prevails, but my fears were reserved for the crossing of a trestle bridge over a very deep chasm, which is itself approached by a sharp curve. This bridge appeared to be overlapped by the cars, so as to produce the effect of looking down directly into a wild gulch, which a torrent raging along it at an immense depth below. Shivering in the keen, frosty air near the summit pass of the Sierras, we entered the snow-sheds, wooden galleries, which for about fifty miles shut out all the splendid views of the region, as given in dioramas, not even allowing a glimpse of the gem of the Sierras, the lovely Donner Lake. One of these sheds is twenty-seven miles long. In a few hours the mercury has fallen from a hundred three degrees to twenty-nine degrees, and we had ascended six thousand nine hundred eighty-seven feet in a hundred five miles. After passing through the sheds, we had several grand views of a pine forest on fire, before reaching Truckee at eleven p.m., having traveled two hundred fifty-eight miles. Truckee, the center of the lumbering region of the Sierras, is usually spoken of as a rough mountain town, and Mr. W. had told me that all the roughs of the district congregated there, that there were nightly pistol affrays in bar-rooms, etc., but as he admitted that a lady was sure of respect and Mr. G. strongly advised me to stay and see the lakes. I got out much dazed, and very stupid with sleep, envying the people in the sleeping-car, who were already unconscious on their luxurious couches. The cars drew up in a street, if street that could be called which was only a wide, cleared space, intersected by rails, with here and there a stump, and great piles of sawn logs bulking big in the moonlight and a number of irregular clabbered, steep-roofed houses, many of them with open fronts, glaring with light and crowded with men. We had pulled up at the door of a rough western hotel, with a partially open front, being a bar-room crowded with men drinking and smoking, and the space between it and the cars was a moving mass of loafers and passengers. On the tracks, engines, tolling heavy bells, were mightily moving, the glare from their cyclopean eyes dulling the light of a forest which was burning fitfully on a mountainside. And on open spaces great fires of pine-logs were burning cheerily, with groups of men round them. A band was playing noisily, and the unholy sound of tom-toms was not far off. Mountains, the sierras of many a fireside dream, seemed to wall in the town, and great pines stood out, sharp and clear-cut against a sky in which a moon and stars were shining frostily. It was a sharp frost at that great height, and when an irrepressible rigor, who seemed to represent the hotel establishment, deposited me and my carpet-bag in a room which answered for the parlor, I was glad to find some remains of pine-knots still alight in the stove. A man came in and said that when the cars were gone he would try to get me a room, but they were so full that it would be a very poor one. The crowd was solely masculine. 
It was then 11.30 p.m., and I had not had a meal since 6 a.m. But when I asked, hopefully, for a hot supper, with tea, I was told that no supper could be got at that hour. But in half an hour the same man returned with a small cup of cold, weak tea, and a small slice of bread, which looked as if it had been much handled. I asked the negro factotum about the hire of horses, and presently a man came in from the bar who, he said, could supply my needs. This man, the very type of a western pioneer, bowed, threw himself into a rocking-chair, drew a spittoon beside him, cut a fresh quid of tobacco, began to chew energetically, and put his feet, cased in miry high boots, into which his trousers were tucked, on the top of the stove. He said he had horses which would both lope and trot, that some ladies preferred the Mexican saddle, that I could ride alone in perfect safety, and after a route had been devised, I hired a horse for two days. This man wore a pioneer's badge as one of the earliest settlers of California, but he had moved on, as one place after another had become too civilized for him. But nothing, he added, was likely to change much in Truckee. I was afterwards told that the usual regular hours of sleep are not observed there. The accommodation is too limited for the population of two thousand, which is masculine mainly, and is liable to frequent temporary additions, and beds are occupied continuously, though by different occupants, throughout the greater part of the twenty-four hours. Consequently, I found the bed and room allotted to me quite tumbled-looking. Men's coats and sticks were hanging up. Miry boots were littered about, and a rifle was in one corner. There was no window to the outer air, but I slept soundly, being only once awoke by an increase of the same din in which I had fallen asleep, varied by three pistol-shots fired in rapid succession. This morning Truckee wore a totally different aspect. The crowds of the night before had disappeared. There were heaps of ashes where the fires had been. A sleepy German waiter seemed the only person about the premises. The open drinking saloons were nearly empty, and only a few sleepy-looking loafers hung about in what is called the street. It might have been Sunday, but they say that it brings a great accession of throng and jollity. Public worship has died out at present. Work is discontinued on Sunday, but the day is given up to pleasure. Putting a minimum of indispensables into a bag, and slipping on my Hawaiian riding-dress, over a silk shirt, and a dust cloak over all, I stealthily crossed the plaza to the livery stable, the largest building in Truckee, where twelve fine horses were stabled in stalls on each side of a broad drive. My friend of the evening before showed me his rig, three velvet-covered side-saddles, almost without horns. Some ladies, he said, used the horn of the Mexican saddle, but none, in the part, rode cavalier fashion. I felt abashed. I could not ride any distance in the conventional mode, and was just going to give up this splendid ravage, when the man said, Ride your own fashion. Here at Truckee, if anywhere in the world, people can do as they like. Blissful Truckee! In no time a large gray horse was rigged out in a handsome silver-bossed Mexican saddle, with ornamental leather tassels hanging from the stirrup-guards, and a housing of black bear-skin. I strapped my silk skirt on the saddle, deposited my cloak in the corn-bin, and was safely on the horse's back before his owner had time to devise any way of mounting me. 
Neither he nor any of the loafers who had assembled showed the slightest sign of astonishment, but all were as respectful as possible. Beginning of footnote For the benefit of other lady travellers, I wish to explain that my Hawaiian riding dress is the American lady's mountain dress, a half-fitting jacket, a skirt reaching to the ankles, and full Turkish trousers gathered into frills falling over the boots a thoroughly serviceable and feminine costume for mountaineering and other rough travelling, as in the Alps or any other part of the world. I.L.B. Author's Note to the Second Edition, November twenty seventh, 1879 End of footnote Once on horseback, my embarrassment disappeared, and I rode through Truckee, whose irregular, steep-roofed houses and shanties, set down in a clearing, and surrounded closely by mountain and forest, looked like a temporary encampment, passed under the Pacific Railroad, and then for twelve miles followed the windings of the Truckee River, a clear, rushing mountain stream, in which immense pine logs had gone aground not to be floated off till the next freshette, a loud-tongued, rollicking stream of ice-cold water, on whose banks no ferns or trailers hang, and which leaves no greenness along its turbulent progress. All was bright with that brilliancy of sky and atmosphere, that blaze of sunshine and universal glitter, which I never saw till I came to California, combined with an elasticity in the air which removed all lassitude, and gives one spirit enough for anything. On either side of the Truckee, great Sierras rose like walls, castellated, embattled, rifted, skirted and crowned with pines of enormous size, the walls now and then breaking apart to show some snow-slashed peak rising into a heaven of intense, unclouded, sunny blue. At this altitude of six thousand feet, one must learn to be content with varieties of coniferae, for except for aspens, which spring up in some places where the pines have been cleared away, and for cottonwoods, which at a lower level fringe the streams, there is nothing but the bear-cherry, the raspberry, the gooseberry, the wild grape, and the wild currant. None of these grew near the Truckee, but I feasted my eyes on pines, which, though not so large as the Wellingtonia of the Yosemite, are really gigantic, attaining a height of two hundred fifty feet, their huge stems, the warm red of cedar-wood, rising straight and branchless for a third of their height, their diameter from seven to fifteen feet, their shape that of a larch, but with the needles long and dark, and cones a foot long. Pines cleft the sky, they were massed wherever level ground occurred, they stood over the Truckee at right angles, or lay across it in prostrate grandeur. Their stumps and carcasses were everywhere, and smooth shoots of the Sierras marked where they were shot down as felled timber, to be floated off by the river. To them this wild region owes its scattered population, and the large ring of the lumberer's axe mingles with the cries of wild beasts and the roar of mountain torrents. The track is a soft, natural wagon-road, very pleasant to ride on. The horse was much too big for me, and had plans of his own, but now and then, where the ground admitted to it, I tried his heavy lope with much amusement. I met nobody, and passed nothing on the road but a freight-wagon, drawn by twenty-two oxen, guided by three fine-looking men, who had some difficulty in making room for me to pass their awkward convoy. After I had ridden about ten miles, the road went up a steep hill in the forest, 
turned abruptly, and through the blue gloom of the great pines which rose from the ravine in which the river was then hid, came glimpses of two mountains, about eleven thousand feet in height, whose bald gray summits were crowned with pure snow. It was one of those glorious surprises in scenery, which makes one feel as if one must bow down and worship. The forest was thick, and had an undergrowth of dwarf spruce and brambles, but as the horse had become fidgety and scary on the track, I turned off in the idea of taking a short cut, and was sitting carelessly, shortening my stirrup, when a great, dark, hairy beast rose, crashing and snorting out of the tangle just in front of me. I had only a glimpse of him, and thought that my imagination had magnified a wild boar, but it was a bear. The horse snorted and plunged violently, as if he would go down to the river, and then turned, still plunging, up a steep bank. Finding that I must come off, I threw myself off on the right side, where the ground rose considerably, so that I had not far to fall. I got up covered with dust, but neither shaken nor bruised. It was truly grotesque and humiliating. The bear ran in one direction, and the horse in another. I hurried after the latter, and twice he stopped till I was close to him. Then he turned round and cantered away. After walking about a mile in deep dust, I picked up first the saddle-blanket and next my bag, and soon came upon the horse, standing facing me, and shaking all over. I thought I should catch him then, but when I went up to him, he turned around, threw up his heels several times, rushed off the track, galloped in circles, bucking, kicking and plunging for some time, and then throwing up his heels as an act of final defiance, went off at full speed in the direction of Truckee, with the saddle over his shoulders and the great wooden stirrups thumping his sides, while I trudged ignominiously along in the dust, laboriously carrying the bag and saddle-blanket. I walked for nearly an hour, heated and hungry, when to my joy I saw the ox-team halted across the top of a gorge, and one of the teamsters leading the horse towards me. The young man said that, seeing the horse coming, they had drawn the team across the road to stop him, and remembering that he had passed them with a lady on him, they feared that there had been an accident, and had just saddled one of their own horses to go in search of me. He brought me some water to wash the dust from my face, and resaddled the horse, but the animal snorted and plunged for some time before he would let me mount, and then sidled along in such a nervous and scared way that the teamster walked for some distance by me to see that I was all right. He said that the woods in the neighborhood of Tahoe had been full of brown and grizzly bears for some days, but that no one was in any danger from them. I took a long gallop beyond the scene of my tumble to quiet the horse, who was most restless and troublesome. Then the scenery became truly magnificent and bright with life. Crested blue jays darted through the dark pines, squirrels in hundreds scampered through the forest, red dragonflies flashed like living light, exquisite chipmunks ran across the track, but only a dusty blue lupin here and there reminded me of earth's fairer children. Then the river became broad and still, and mirrored in its transparent depths regal pines, straight as an arrow, with rich yellow and green lichen clinging to their stems, and firs and balsam trees filling up the spaces between them, the gorge opened, and this mountain-girdled lake lay before me, with its margin broken up into bays and promontories, 
most picturesquely clothed by huge sugar-pines. It lay dimpling and scintillating beneath the noonday sun, as entirely unspoilt as fifteen years ago, when its pure loveliness was known only to trappers and Indians. One man lives on it the whole year round. Otherwise, early October strips its shores of their few inhabitants, and thereafter, for seven months, it is rarely accessible except on snowshoes. It never freezes. In the dense forests which bound it, and drape two-thirds of its gaunt sierras, are hordes of grizzlies, brown bears, wolves, elk, deer, chipmunks, martens, minks, skunks, foxes, squirrels, and snakes. On its margin I found an irregular wooden inn, with a lumber-wagon at the door, on which was the carcass of a large grizzly bear, shot behind the house this morning. I had intended to ride ten miles farther, but, finding that the trail in some places was a blind one, and being bewitched by the beauty and serenity of Tahoe, I have remained here sketching, reveling in the view from the veranda, and strolling in the forest. At this height there is frost every night of the year, and my fingers are benumbed. The beauty is entrancing. The sinking sun is out of sight behind the western Sierras, and all the pine-hung promontories on this side of the water are rich indigo, just reddened with lake, deepening here and there into Tyrian purple. The peaks above, which still catch the sun, are bright rose-red, and all the mountains on the other side are pink, and pink, too, are the far-off summits on which the snowdrifts rest. Indigo, red, and orange tints stain the still water, which lies solemn and dark against the shore, under the shadow of stately pines. An hour later, and a moon nearly full, not a pale, flat disk, but a radiant sphere, has wheeled up into the flushed sky. The sunset has passed through every stage of beauty, through every glory of color, through riot and triumph, through pathos and tenderness, into a long, dreamy, painless rest, succeeded by the profound solemnity of the moonlight, and a stillness broken only by the night cries of beasts in the aromatic forests. I. L. B. End of Letter One